0: Millions of women worldwide swear by ovacetol, the number one inositol supplement by Theralogix for balancing hormone levels. Theralogix also offers a wide range of evidence-based fertility supplements for men and women trusted by the top fertility clinics across the country. All Theralogix products are independently tested and certified for content accuracy, purity, and freedom from contaminants. Theralogix, supplements from science.
3: Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Obedient with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two utterly fantabulous and model-rific, because you both look super put together this morning, uh, which is not surprising. It's not surprising, but it's always, well, Abby, you're at work and you still look Abby fantastic. always looks perfect. Like oh, she really that does. She's all about
2: it being perfect. You really too, kind.
3: <laughs> it's, um, it's really kind of annoying. If you could just show up with your hair disheveled and your face a <laughs> mess sometime, that Even would be. Even a
0: ponytail. It's like super cute.
3: Aw. Super so
0: cute. Nice. You're building my ego up.
3: <laughs> um, so I'm joined by Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. And Hi, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. And we have a guest with us today, um, Julia Axelbaum, who is a board-certified registered dietitian. She's boarded in obesity and weight management medicine, and she is the director of nutrition at Form Health. And so we are going to play... I say 20 questions about nutrition. What I really mean is like 55 questions about nutrition <laughs> yeah, or more with her. So we are so glad to see you, Julia. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so thrilled and I've been looking forward to this for a little while.
3: Yay. And you, which is saying a lot because you just got back from a big trip, right? Yes. Actually, um, my husband
1: and I just got back from a week-long trip in uh, to Ireland Mm -hmm. Um, this was actually, I'm part of why I'm so excited to be on this podcast is because I'm actually pregnant now and do, uh, with my second baby in about a month and a half, two months. So it's very, um, timely. And so we went to Ireland for a little baby moon. We left my two-year-old son home with my parents watching him for the week. So it was so nice just to have the time us two together. Um, it's, I mean, it was such a beautiful country and we, we went to Dublin for a day. We rented a car and basically drove all around the country, seeing lots of castles and sheep, it was beautiful.
2: Did you go? Did you go to Waterford? Did you see the Waterford factory? Or no, I don't even know what that is. We did. What is the Waterford Crystal? They make Waterford Crystal. Oh no, I'm, I think
1: that's the north. I'm not sure. You know, it's actually
2: down south, and there's oh. also the Blarney Stone is around there. Did you kiss yes, the Blarney Stone? We okay.
1: Stone. Yes, that was a funny experience. It's so touristy, and so it's something yeah. that we <laughs> to do. But it's very funny. It's like you you climb up a castle and then you you walk to a certain part of the castle and there's an attendant there that helps lower you down. And you kind of have to get into this like upside down position and he's like, <laughs> like holding you by your legs a little bit and you have to bend down upside down and kiss like the very bottom of a stone. <laughs> and you have to kiss it. Otherwise you don't get the good luck. So it was worth it.
2: <laughs> Maybe that explains some things for me because I ended up going to the Blarney Woolen Mills to go shopping instead of kissing the Blarney Stone and I had to make a decision on the two roads so maybe that explains some things <laughs>
1: <laughs> well there's always another chance if you need that extra luck i don't know we'll yeah. see it's only been a week since we got home but <laughs> oh, wow.
0: one thing that was surprising when you were in Ireland
1: um I would say I knew about the driving on the other side of the road, but I didn't realize how big of a deal it would be. We rented a car. People would say to us before when they were asking our plans, they were kind of asking like, oh, are you nervous about the driving on the other side of the road? And I'm like, no, like I got it. How bad could it be? But I have to say one of the things that surprised me was because the steering wheel is on the other side of the car your spatial reasoning is like all off. And so I, I feel like we take for granted now that we just have a sense of where the car ends on the other side. Mm-hmm. And when you're like driving on the other side of the road, you're, you're steering those on the other side of the car and you're driving on the side of Cliff. It's very scary for the passenger who is my husband. I was too scared to let him drive um, <laughs> because there, it's, it's sort of like hard to to not veer off the road at all the entire time. So we we were okay. Okay, but that was definitely harder than expected. Did you did you have any roundabouts that you had to
2: go around the wrong way?
1: They are obsessed with roundabouts. You're they obsessed. love roundabouts. And yes, that's another good point. Like just going around the roundabout the other direction is very confusing.
2: I had the same, same situation in Scotland this summer with my husband. But he um, know I was too I was too scared to drive. I just rode like this in the passenger seat the whole time. <laughs>
1: I know, I know. It's like scary both ways. But once I started driving, I realized it's scarier for him. He's like holding on for dear life. And I at least had a sense of, you know, what was going on. And I felt in control. You are at
2: least in control of the vehicle. Exactly. You see all this stuff flying by your head, these branches and exactly. stuff, and you feel forgot like to go in the ditch. It was scary.
3: Exactly. Do you feel like rental cars in like Ireland and Scotland, do they come with preset finger grips where all the passengers before
0: <laughs> you have like cloth? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Walmart, Walmarts. marks on the side of the car.
0: Maybe <laughs> oh on my gosh. I, I think if I go to Ireland or Scotland, I need to just hire a driver.
2: That that would be yeah. the best piece of advice. Then you don't have to worry about it.
1: It's so true. And it also takes a few days to really get the hang of it. So then once I did it for the first few days, there was no point of even having my husband start driving because it would take him a few days I to get that. That's right. So... Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah. We survived. Well, we're very glad that you survived um, because <laughs> we're very excited to have you with us today. So we're going to do a couple questions. Susan, what you got?
0: Okay. So this is our first one. Hello, I am 33 years old, had an IUD removed in April of 22 and got pregnant immediately. Went to our first ultrasound, find out found out we had a blighted ovum. Mm-hmm. Took mesoprostol and nifeprostone at nine weeks. No regular period after miscarrying and found to have PCOS started inositol in February 23 and cycles regulated. Simview showed right tube not as open as the left. Husband's sperm was within normal limits. Five medicated cycles with letrozole and had one or two leading follicles each cycle and didn't get pregnant. Started with fertility clinic in September 23. First IUI cycle, follicle on the right side with positive pregnancy tests. Two good ultrasounds and embryos stopped growing at six weeks. Heartbeats stopped at seven and a half weeks. Um, Had DNC and waiting on POC results. AMA age is seven. Should we do another IUI or consider IVF with PGT? I mean, I think she's 33.
2: She has a great AMH. They got pregnant on their first IUI cycle. You know, there's nothing wrong with trying that three or four more times. I mean, statistically, 50-50 chance the pregnancy loss is going to be due to an abnormality. Genetically, um, I mean, if I were, you know, if she were 40, I would say maybe might be quicker, more time efficient to go to IVF. But if I were her, I would at least try a few more. Um, You know, I think part of it is, however, if it happens again, if emotionally she can handle another a third loss that she's already had two. So I think that's kind of, um, I think it's more of an emotional decision at this point than a medical one.
3: I would agree with that. I would start to consider doing the extra set of labs just to make sure everything's good. Because especially when you've had one live birth, people kind of get lulled into everything is 100% fine and okay. And that may not necessarily be the case because there are some chromosomal abnormalities that can occur where you can just hit jackpot and get lucky with your first kid that then cause problems later. And there's also acquired things that can happen like antibodies that can pop up that can make conceiving and continuing on really difficult. And it's a blood draw. And so that's something that i think is probably worthwhile to do just for peace of mind because that may that may make your decision for you depending on what's going on
0: i totally agree with the recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation and and especially maybe also having a saline ultrasound closely taking a look at the lining of the uterus uh, a, a little more closely, especially after two miscarriages, but chromosomes, antiphospholipids, making sure your thyroid and prolactin are normal. Um, but yeah, if if your heart and mind say that you're still open to IUI, I think it's probably a reasonable thing if if the yeah. rest of your evaluation is normal and nothing else needs to be addressed. Um, but a lot of that is a heart and mind decision, and only you can decide if you want to go through something and and kind of play the chromosomal jackpot. The
3: other component of that is that if you just want one more child, you have a lot lot. lot more leeway than if you want two or three or four more kids because you have to start to factor in the aging component of it plus your your history of losses. So, you know, if you wanted multiple more children along the lines, I would probably jump to IVF a little bit sooner. But, you know, I think I think you've got some wiggle room here, which is kind of nice.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, let's do one more. Um, hi, Docs. I was recently introduced to your podcast and it's now all I listen to Thank you so much. That's very uh-huh. sweet. Um, I'm interested in getting your opinion on transferring a frozen tested embryo from from a previous cycle in the three to five day window following a second egg retrieval? Is this something that you do in your clinics? If it is, if it depends on the individual, what makes you a good or bad candidate for this? Thank you in advance. That's a good question. I actually had um, this come up in my clinic in the last month. Somebody was somewhere else and did this and what my opinion on things. And actually,
2: your your partner, Carrie, Carrie, your partner, Bruce, is the one that sort of kind of changed this for everybody.
3: Yeah, yeah. So when you look at the, the reasoning behind doing frozen embryo transfers, it's that you want to optimize the environment for whatever it is you're doing. And so part of the reason why we split into frozen embryo transfers is because after doing this for a while, the technology finally got good enough that when you froze an embryo, you weren't compromising it in the same way that you were when we're talking about IVF 20 years ago, where there was a slow freeze process and the embryos didn't necessarily survive all that well. And freezing an embryo meant that you you took a hit to quality and success rates. And so when you look at doing a frozen embryo transfer on the heels of a fresh retrieval cycle, you are losing the benefit that you get from optimizing the uterine environment. So you keep the benefit of having the embryo tested and all of that. But what you what you lose is that the uterus, after it's been exposed to those really high levels of estrogens and progesterone and oftentimes a lupron trigger, all of those things, you're now kind of screwing with your ability to to get an optimal uterine environment. And some of this is going to depend on like what your body's characteristics are, but it's really hard to nail that. And what I mean by that is that either you're you're young, kind of a PCOS, ton of follicles picture, in which case your estrogen's sky high. You probably have to have a Lupron trigger to avoid hyperstimulation, and that is working against your uterine environment. Or on the flip side, you are older with fewer eggs, and you are at a higher risk of your progesterone being really high, and um, and that not being a uterine environment that's. Con- inducive to pregnancy because the, the progesterone preparation has started not when we want it to. And so you can do anything. I would say it's probably not in your best interest to do that because you never want to waste an embryo, especially if you had to work really hard to get it. And so I kind of err on the side of a of a frozen, a legit frozen transfer rather than on the heels of a fresh one. But what do you guys think? Stuff to add?
2: That's pretty much what we did do. And your partner, Dr. Shapiro, was the... Or Shapiro, it was <laughs> Yep. Elsewhere. Yes. Um, but he was the one that really kind of was the person, first person, I think that really recognized that. And so we've done that probably for the last six or eight years. And I think we do get really good results with it. So we, at times we'll do that if a patient really wants to, but we kind of like you, we really would recommend doing it as a true frozen cycle and not as part of sort of a fresh frozen cycle.
0: Totally agree with that. And like the patient I had recently that had this done elsewhere, they actually did it after a Lupron trigger. So that is not What you want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, You definitely, if if you decide this is what's the right thing for you, whatever that reason is, um, you really need to have that HCG trigger. And if for some reason you need a Lupron trigger because of risk of hyperstimulation or something like that, remember safety is always number one okay which means we want to keep you from getting sick and then let us work on getting you pregnant because we we don't want to put you in a compromised position where not only could you get sick but we were increasing the risk of um, pregnancy you know complications down down the road Did you know 64% of employers added a family building benefit because an employee asked for it? No matter the size of your organization, you have the power to make a difference for current and future employees. Want to know where to start? Progeny is here to help. Progeny is a family building benefits company that has been helping employees and employers advocate for increased access to effective and equitable fertility and family building benefits for over seven years. To get the resources that can help you make a difference visit, progyny. dot com forward slash talk to HR today.
3: Excellent questions. Okay, so now we get to what the three of us have all been waiting for, which is we get get super excited talking to dietitians because it's all the stuff that we don't get a whole lot of extra training about throughout (laughs) our our educational process. And so I have a list of questions that's as approximately as long as my arm. And so the, probably the first one is a little bit of a distinction about your training. And so what is being board certified in obesity and weight management mean? And how does that put you in a, a kind of different category than just someone who's an RD, registered dietitian? Great question. So first
1: of all, becoming a registered dietitian, I think there um, is misconceptions about what that even means. So yeah. a lot of people don't realize that uh, a nutrition degree is really intense. It's actually kind of similar. You start off on a pre-med track um, where you take courses like chemistry and organic chemistry and biochemistry and human physiology to really gain a deeper understanding of how food gets metabolized in the body, how it affects our health. You also take Classes on counseling and behavior change and food science. Um, yeah. it's, it's an intense long road. Um, when you finish your nutrition degree, you then have to go on to do what's called a dietetic internship, which is completing 1200 clinical hours in hospital setting. This is like a little bit similar to what you think of as a doctor doing their residency. It's very competitive. It's a matching system. So you as the applicant, it visit an interview and then you rank what places you prefer to go to. And then they rank their applicants. And then there's one day, one moment where there's a match and you find out where you're moving in the country. So you get placed somewhere. And then while you're there, you do, you complete different rotations in different specialties, such as cardiology and on and kidney disease and liver disease, learning how to use nutrition to help manage these different disease states. Mm -hmm. And once you finish your clinical training, you then qualify to take the big national exam. So you take a few months off, you study for that. And once you pass, then you receive your RD credentials, your registered dietitian credentials. So the first important distinction just to understand is um, a lot of people ask, what's the difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian? Mm -hmm. And so while I'm sure there are many great nutritionists, out there. The word nutritionist is just not a legal term. Anyone can technically call themselves a nutritionist. Ah. Yeah. Versus registered dietitian, that's those are the credentials. And that ensures that you know that that person has that level of training. Um, So in order to do any sort of clinical job um, working on, it's called medical nutrition therapy, you have to be an RD, a registered dietitian. So yeah. after you take the big national exam and you get your RD, you have to keep up continuing education credits every year to stay up to date on the latest research because nutrition science is always evolving. Um, and then beyond that, you can choose to further specialize. So. That you can get board certified um, as an eating disorder dietitian. Um, you can uh, do um, what what I did, uh, obesity and and weight management. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an, another exam that you take, and you actually have to retake it and pass every five <laughs> years again because it's such a evolving young science. New research is constantly coming out, so it makes sense that you you
3: it's something that you have to keep renewing to stay up to date. Very cool, nice. So. Some of the questions that we get asked pretty, pretty constantly are related to, I've heard about X diet from wherever they've heard about it, their, their friend, their hairdresser, the internet, whomever, and they're trying to conceive and they say, should I be on XYZ diet? And so I kind of like to go through some of the top things that we get asked of, let's start with, should I be on a gluten-free or dairy-free diet? As you're trying to conceive, yes, great questions.
1: So, I guess just first thing I want to say is there's no one specific food that increases a person's chance to get pregnant or decreases a person's chance to get pregnant. I uh, mean,
0: pineapples aren't gonna break it.
1: <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you more the specifics but overall this has been studied a lot and we see that it's overall dietary and lifestyle patterns that matter most so i hope that takes some of the pressure and stress off of people worrying that oh my gosh i ate that one food right is this going to get in the way of me mm-hmm. conceiving? um so when when it comes to diet for conception um there, the way we eat definitely has an effect. Okay, um, you know we want to make sure that we're nourishing our body properly. This is the time to really set ourselves up for the most successful, healthy pregnancy. Um, but again, we're we're really thinking about sort of like overall healthy eating patterns. So what that looks like, they they've studied they've studied this a lot on, on large populations, and what that looks like overall is a, more of a what's called the Mediterranean diet that really focuses on healthy fats uh whole grains lots of fruits and vegetables beans nuts seeds those plant based proteins mm-hmm. and it's trans fats, you know, coming from processed foods and baked foods, processed meats like sausage, bacon, hot dogs, and ultra processed carbohydrates, white bread, white rice, packaged sugary snacks that cause spikes in blood sugar, which can actually decrease ovulation. Um, but when it comes to the specifics, so let's say gluten free. Okay. So first of all, this is, this is such a, a popular word, a popular diet, right? That you hear about. What is gluten? So. Ludin is a mixture of proteins found in certain grains. It gives dough elasticity, allows it to rise, keep its shape. So it's it's in things like pasta, bread, cereals. Now, some people, about 1% of the population, have an autoimmune condition called celiac disease. Which is what I have. Oh, okay. So where gluten actually causes damage to the lining of the small intestine, leading to inflammation, malabsorption of nutrients, and can be associated with fertility problems if left untreated. Luckily, there's a test for it. Okay. And people who do test positive for celiac disease should follow a strict gluten-free diet. I would highly recommend working with a registered dietitian if that's you, because it can be very restrictive if you don't know what you're doing. But if a person does not have celiac disease, current research suggests that there is no specific benefit to avoiding gluten for that average person who's trying to conceive. Like I said, it can be highly restrictive. It can limit vital nutrients. Now, some people will say to me, but I started cutting out gluten... And I'm feeling so much better. I'm losing weight. Now, probably the reason for that is because when oftentimes when we start limiting gluten, we're cutting out or limiting those white carbs, those packaged snacks. And and that's a great thing. We should be limiting that. We should be doing more whole foods and more plant-based proteins. So yes, it can definitely make a person feel better. It can definitely lead to weight loss if those are the types of foods that you're cutting out. But I would never want someone to be cutting out those whole grains that are high in fiber just because they're gluten when those whole grains are so crucial for blood sugar control. They help us avoid constipation. Fiber has been shown to help decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease, help with weight loss, reduce the risk of many different cancers. And so I definitely would not recommend just the average person trying to cut out gluten, thinking that that's either going to help them lose weight or help them conceive.
0: And in fact, a lot of people, sometimes when they start trying to do gluten-free, they, they're they're overwhelmed because it is absolutely overwhelming when you're actually yeah. trying to do real gluten-free and they end up not necessarily making great choices and they end up losing a lot of those things like fiber. I mean, you can go and figure out what to do To make a gluten free diet have those things in it, but it it is not necessarily intuitive and it it takes a lot of effort. Um, So, if it's something that you truly need to do, you should absolutely do it. But if not, probably following something more like a Mediterranean diet is going to probably accomplish the same things and potentially still make you feel better. Exactly right.
1: And I think, and I'll, I'll speak more to dairy in a second, but I think overall, we hear so much in the dieting world about restriction, right? Taking this food out, avoiding this food completely. But this really leads to a negative mindset. It leads to this restriction mindset. And it's it's not, it's typically not very effective because the second you tell someone to not think about something, yeah. or we automatically thinking about <laughs> it, right? We crave those foods more. And it's just, it's impossible to say, I'll never eat this for the rest of my life. And what we're trying to do is is improve our health for the rest of our lives, right? Or, or keep the weight off for the rest of our lives. So it just doesn't make sense. And so what I do and form health really focuses on is help to work with patients, think about what they can add to their diet to support, you know, a healthy lifestyle. And when we work with fertility patients, to support egg health and
3: fertility. So speaking of eggs, we hear a lot about dairy, which it still never makes sense to me why eggs are considered dairy because well, I have no, that yet to see. Safer. Like I've yet to see a cow lay an egg. Um, <laughs> not that I've ever actually seen a chicken lay an egg, but still, let's not get hung up by technicalities. Um, so we hear so much about this: avoid the inflammatory diet that includes dairy. And I've I have heard this from the internet. I've heard it from patients. I've heard it from trainers that I have worked with in the past, and and exercise, you know, fitness professionals. And so what's
1: what's the story there? There is so much confusion around dairy. So I'm really glad you're. Bringing- this one up. Dairy, I think, used to be thought of as this whole category of bad for fertility. Uh, there's a big um, study, it was called the Nurses' Health Study, which uh, studied um, pre-con- the preconception period, and they actually looked at dairy intake and fertility. They studied, I believe, 18,000 women trying to get pregnant over about eight years. And so this study, the Nurses' Health Study, actually taught us a lot about what we know of this link between nutrition and fertility. And 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 what the Nurses Health Study showed is that there is no reason to believe that regular dairy consumption, yogurt, milk, cheese, has a negative effect on fertility. If anything, actually full fat dairy has been shown to help lower risks of infertility. Fat plays a really important role in helping to balance hormones. It's a great source of calcium and vitamin D, both of which support fertility. Now, there may be maybe some benefit for women with a history of PCOS um, to be on an overall lower carb diet uh, prior to conception to conception to help them increase their chances of fertility. And so dairy may be included that in that because there is carbs in dairy, um, but that would sort of be the only maybe exception I would think about. But overall. Dairy absolutely can be part of a healthy lifestyle and would not be getting in the way of uh, fertility overall.
0: And dairy is a great source of protein as well. Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. And protein is so important, making sure that we're getting enough protein. I mean, protein is the building blocks of... That's how we create tissue, right? Which is pretty important for when we're building a human.
0: So what about these anti inflammatory diets that Carrie was mentioning as uh, well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So anti inflammatory diets um are associated with improved fertility. But what is an anti I, I feel like the word sounds very fancy. What does that mean? right? What does that mean? What does that mean? mean? It comes back to the Mediterranean diet that we were talking about a few minutes ago, where we're encouraging plant-based foods, whole grains, healthy fats, like olive oil, nuts, seeds, fish, and limiting or discouraging red meat, highly processed foods, saturated fat. And there's a lot of research that this Mediterranean diet is very good for us overall. Um, helps helps improve fertility too it's great for our heart health um other parts of the anti-inflammatory diet sort of thinking more lifestyle wise would be getting in exercise right staying physically active getting in enough sleep controlling stress so it's more than just diet but yes this again i think this is um like a fancy, fancy. word that right that that people say and it sounds really complicated but Overall, healthy eating patterns is what helps, and, and healthy lifestyle patterns is what helps put our body into that anti inflammatory state, which absolutely is important and can help with uh, fertility.
2: Can you talk a little bit about um, optimal weight for fertility? You know, we see patients on lots of extremes, both on the high end and the low end of weight. And I think certainly on the low end of weight, people a lot of times don't realize that that could impair their fertility as much as being too heavy. So, Can you speak a little bit about what the optimal weight really is for fertility, for good fertility?
1: Yeah, sure. So you're right. Weight does have a strong impact on fertility. Um, And so eating well before pregnancy to achieve a healthy weight can absolutely have a positive effect on the chances of conceiving. Both being overweight or being underweight can make it harder for a person to get pregnant. Weight matters because it affects our hormones, right? Fat tissue produces estrogen and too much or too little estrogen can throw off hormonal balance and even prevent ovulation. So it's something to, to definitely think about. I wouldn't say it's the only factor involved of course, um, but we absolutely see that when we work with women who are um, in the overweight or um, obese category and we help them start to lose 5-10% of their total body weight, even though technically their weight is still in the, even, even obese range right? when you're looking at BMI, just losing five, 10% of their body weight actually can significantly increase their chances of uh, conceiving.
2: Is that also true on the other end as well?
1: Yes, yes. Um, uh, Yeah, so we, I mean, we we form health, we're a medical weight loss center. So we don't work with patients who are trying to gain weight. But yes, absolutely. If a person is underweight, they may be struggling to get pregnant because of that. Um, Because again, it has, there's such a connection between our hormones and our estrogen. And so gaining weight to get into that healthy weight category plays a huge role, but also the types of foods that they're eating to gain the weight or to lose the weight plays a huge role too.
0: I, I know most of your focus is on weight loss, but for our our segment of people who do need to gain weight, like what what are maybe one or two things that They can add to their armamentarium to help them gain weight in a healthy way, excluding people who have eating disorders and things like that, but people who are just, you know, that innately thin person who has always struggled to maintain weight. Yeah, I would say a big one is healthy fats. Fertility
1: and fats go hand in hand and fats have more than double the amount of calories per gram per gram compared to carbs and protein. So you just get a bigger bang for your buck. So nuts, seeds, eggs, avocado, salmon, these are higher calorie foods because they have those healthy fats, which again, have more calories per gram. Um, And not only do they help increase your total calories to help gain weight, they also have these uh, positive effects on fertility. So I would maybe think about for that person uh, trying to get in those extra calories to gain weight, I'd maybe think think about uh, making a healthy trail mix as a snack or, or adding some walnuts and almonds to their yogurt or to their oatmeal, um, maybe adding some avocado to just their regular sandwich that they normally eat without avocado, little things like that.
3: Cool. So I have a question also kind of along those same lines, and it's about very regimented eating. And this is not necessarily someone who's been diagnosed with an eating disorder, but we, we definitely see people who come in and these are usually the very, very fit people. Their BMIs technically fall within the normal weight range. And I ask them about their nutrition because I can look at them and I can see mm-hmm. they've got a really low body fat and they're able to give me a very regimented diet of yep every morning i have you know a, a small bowl of oatmeal or you know two egg whites or whatever it may be and then for lunch i have a salad and you know i have a snack of almonds and then i have dinner that's protein and a vegetable or whatever it may be but it's it's remarkably similar to that and they will deliberately include i eat avocado i eat almonds i eat
2: yeah, but say almonds and avocados. Almonds yeah.
3: and avocados, I swear, send up all of the. I don't know if that does it. Red flags. Yeah, they send up a lot of red flags. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm I'm worried about your weight and nutrition intake. Yeah. Like, is there is there a minimum level? Because these patients forever and always want to know. Well, how much do I need to eat? Because they're they're good at calculating the numbers, and they can. And they, they do not the want to
2: gain any weight either. They do, that's a really hard thing to
3: yeah, and so yeah. how how does that factor in?
1: Yeah, so in in an on an individual basis, I would say sometimes it's really helpful to work one on one with a registered dietitian who can figure out your exact calorie needs and help you know the exact portions depending on what your goal is whether maintain, gain, lose weight. Overall, I would, would say thinking about including all of the different macronutrients at each meal. So including carbs, fat and protein at every meal and thinking about, um, sort of like how, how, what are the foods that you're filling up on, right? If you're filling up most of that meal on vegetables and having a little bit of protein and fat it's probably just not enough even if te- technically you're including it i think a lot of people are are um sort of have this fear around carbs um and that's one that i would i would just like dig a little bit deeper into making sure that they are including a high fiber whole grain carb source at every meal um but oftentimes just working with a dietitian to understand like i i think i'm eating well but but something you know maybe is getting in the way for me what's going on and looking at what where those gaps might be, and and whether it's counting you know counting calories a little bit more specifically for a few weeks just to get the hang of it, um, or even sort of thinking more about the plating method, and and is there a certain meal or certain snack where I should be including a little bit more, a little bit less? That can be really beneficial.
0: So, um, a lot of our patients who are overweight. Have tried or are on keto type diets. What paleo are being thoughts? the other one. I'm sorry?
3: Paleo being the other one. If it's not keto, it's oftentimes yeah. paleo.
0: Right. So keto, paleo before pregnancy, during pregnancy. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Keto and
1: low carb or, or paleo are very low carb diets. And what worries me if a person is trying to get pregnant um, or, or they are pregnant is the foods that they end up limiting in order to keep their carbs very low to follow these diets are so good for us. You know, foods like fruit and even some vegetables, right? Those, those have a good amount of carbs. And I often meet with patients who are told like, Oh, I don't, I don't eat carrots. I don't eat cherry tomatoes, right? Because I was told those have a lot of carbs. When in reality, you know, fruits and vegetables, these are so good for our overall health and they're so good for fertility, right? This is where we get antioxidants, which help prevent cell damage. And this is where we get all these different. Vitamins and minerals, every color, right? So if you think about, people will say, fill your plate kind of to look like a rainbow with lots of color. Every color represents a different vitamin and and mineral that is so good for us. Um, And if we're we're restricting fruits and vegetables in order to keep our carbs slow, like that right there is a big red flag to me. But beyond that, I mean, whole grains, right? If we're restricting carbs, then... We're not eating foods like brown rice and quinoa and sprouted, uh, you know, sprouted breads and, you know, whole grain pastas and farro and, you know, all of these grains that are filled with fiber and folic acid, right? Folate is a big one also that actually has been shown to really help increase fertility. Um legumes, beans, you know, great sources of plant-based protein, great sources of fiber, but also are high carb. And so people who are doing keto or paleo diets are not going to be doing a whole lot of those. And then dairy, which we know has the protein, has the calcium, vitamin D, the phosphorus, all of these foods end up being severely restricted and end up leading to people missing out on many crucial nutrients. And then the other thing is oftentimes these diets tend to be very high in saturated fats, right? Because, because it ends up being a lot of, um, you know, meats and animal proteins, which actually has been shown not to be good for fertility. Um, and those are foods that we should really try to limit, keep to a minimum when we're trying to increase our chances for conceiving. Um, so so that I guess is is my, my general take. I would be very careful with that. I really want to focus on including the foods that our body needs, not restricting or keeping out um, certain foods because that just leads to us not getting in all those vitamins and minerals that our body really needs.
2: So in the event someone, for whatever reason, and can't or won't, can't get those amount of vitamins, those types of different vitamins. Is there any, because we get this question a lot, is there any particular vitamin supplement that you recommend? I mean, obviously a prenatal vitamin, but there's differences among the prenatal vitamin group. There's some that are really restricted that don't really give you much. There's others where you're taking them three times a day, Any recommendations there that you would, that you have for prenatal vitamins?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, first thing I would say is if you're, if you're thinking about getting pregnant, just starting by taking a prenatal that includes folic acid, iron, calcium is a really good place to start. It's even no matter how good our diet is, there's, always going to be little gaps here and there. So it's sort of like insurance for your body, kind of like just in case, even before you're pregnant, um, to make sure you're covering all your bases. And then, and also preconception and pregnancy are a time of higher and unique nutrient needs. Uh, so it's very, it's, it's sort of, again, that insurance just to make sure that you um, aren't too low in any one particular area. But preconception, it's an important time to get labs checked, right? To see if anything is low. Okay. If anything is low, if there are any vitamins or minerals that are low, that can get in the way of conception. Okay, so let me talk about a few important ones. I mentioned folate. Okay, folate both pre and during pregnancy helps reduce the risk for neural tube defects like spina bifida. Uh, Folate plays a really important role in DNA synthesis, which is a huge part, obviously, of the beginning stages of life. Taking folate at least one month prior to conception um, can be really beneficial, but there are actually even some studies showing that taking folate three months prior to uh, when trying to get pregnant can reduce risk for infertility and pregnancy loss, okay? And And that's
0: really really important for our listeners to hear because we have a ton of people who have stopped taking their prenatals Uh because they've gotten discouraged. I mean, I know we tell all of our patients to start them up, be taking them, all those types of things. And I can't tell you how many times I'll go in and be reviewing medications the the morning of an egg retrieval or embryo transfer. And I'm like, you don't have prenatal vitamins listed on here. And they're like, yeah we really haven't been doing them. I'm like, oh my goodness, please take your prenatals.
1: Yes, and folate is the one
0: that really sticks out
1: to me that supplementing actually at doses higher than just the the regular recommended amount that we're supposed to get every day um, has been actually linked to lower frequency of infertility, lower risk of pregnancy loss, greater success in infertility treatment. So super important and and then we can also for sure get it through food through our diet as well. So beans and lentils are really good sources. Those are the best sources uh, from food uh, for folate. So taking that extra folate, I would say at least three months before um, trying to get pregnant and then focusing on beans and lentils. For a lot of people that's not, those aren't foods that are natural to kind of include in their diet, but... What I like to recommend to my patients is make a batch in the big, on the weekend, beginning of the week, and then you can just kind of like sprinkle it into different meals that you're eating throughout the week, like putting lentils in your salad or even um, putting some um, beans or lentils onto your sandwich. Like you could just kind of like add it in. Um, to other meals that you're already doing without it really changing the flavor or taste too much. And so, um, especially now that it's, it's getting colder, at least where I am in Boston, um, doing lentil soups and bean stews and chilies, like now is a really good time to get mm-hmm. those in. So yeah, so folate is, that's like sort of number one in my mind. Um, vitamin D is another important one. If deficient, replenishing vitamin D has really been shown to improve the chances of IVF success. Um, but if for, if, a person has normal vitamin D levels. The research actually does not show that adding vitamin D on top of that makes any difference. The thing because about- being
0: you vitamin, are deficient in vitamin D to start that, with.
1: Yes, that's job. exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, vitamin D is one that's very common to be deficient in because it comes from sunshine. And a lot of us live in places where we don't have sun all year. Um, there are some food sources that we can get vitamin D from, but it's kind of limited, mostly from the sun. And so that's a really important one to get checked because like, exactly like you said, most people are deficient and it's super important for skeletal and muscle
3: health, mental health, immune function. And I'm going to make a note here of even in Las Vegas, in the smack middle of the desert where we have very few cloudy days, almost every single one of my patients is vitamin D deficient. That's, so crazy. A little, that's, that's really a Because but everyone are sunscreen your you're wearing
0: sunscreen, you're blocking that yeah, and um, different um, skin tones absorb vitamin D differently as well.
3: Yeah. So my desert girls, you check it because you're probably deficient because I mean, I get, I feel like I get about three people a year who are actually at good levels of vitamin D. And at least one of those three is because she's already on vitamin D.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That's, it's a super common one. Another one that's just coming to mind is vitamin B12. Actually that's a vitamin that comes only from animal sources. And Mm -hmm. so anyone who is vegetarian or vegan should definitely, think about supplementing B12 because that's one that they uh, might be low in. And like I said, for the most part, if if a person is deficient in something, we definitely want to think about supplementing it. I do think we kind of drive ourselves a little bit too crazy with thinking about like, oh, but I heard this supplement might be good and, you know, this one might be good. Should I be adding all these individual (laughs) ones? And, (laughs) And I really come back to if something is low, we should supplement, but otherwise take a prenatal. It doesn't have to be like one of these super fancy prenatals that you see on Instagram getting targeted adds, like just take a general prenatal and then make sure that you have your labs checked and see if there's anything you need to add on top of that.
2: And you mentioned checking your labs. And I think probably three of us is a routine. That's not a routine or routine labs we would think about doing. So if somebody said, okay, I want my vitamin levels checked, will we check folic acid, B12, vitamin D. What else would you recommend?
1: Yeah, iron is another one. Iron defi- deficiency is linked to reduced fertility in both men and women. Um, so that's another one that we want to supplement if low.
3: Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for telling us really all the things about everything that we, um, that are just, it's fascinating on just a human being level. Plus when you apply it to our patients, we, we are super appreciative there. So- Thank you so much for all of those all of those tidbits throughout.
1: Oh my gosh, you're very very welcome. I think that um there's so much confusion and stress around food and and just getting too detailed and specific on, you know, too much of this and too little of this and restriction when I think sometimes we really just have to take a step back and say what do we know is good for us, right? What are the foods that we know contribute to overall health that, you know, are not just in style some years and out of style other years. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the same goes the other way like what are the foods that we know that, yeah, we could treat ourselves here and there, but like these are not foods that are supporting a healthy, uh, you know, a healthy diet and a healthy lifestyle.
3: So bringing it back to the basics. Thank you so much. So we have had, uh, Julia Axelbaum, who's a registered dietitian. She's the, uh, she's a board certified in obesity and weight management. She is the, um, Director of Nutrition and Form Health. So thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to turn in, tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Instagram and Facebook. So shoot us a question, shoot us a comment. We'd love to hear from you.
0: You can also visit fertilitydocsandsinsert.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Docs segment. So don't hold back. We love episode ideas as well. So let us know what you want to hear
2: remember, this is not a substitution for medical advice from your own physician. So um, make sure you ask them if you have specific questions. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks,
3: everyone. Bye. Bye. This episode is supported by Receptiva DX. Getting pregnant isn't always easy as so many people listening know. Many couples struggle with infertility and unexplained infertility can be particularly frustrating. Receptiva DX is the only test that can identify endometriosis, progesterone resistance, and endometritis in a single sample, all of which are causes for unexplained infertility and therefore impact success rates of IVF treatments. Receptiva DX includes BCL-6, which is a marker that identifies uterine inflammation, which is most often associated with asymptomatic or silent endometriosis. Learn more at ReceptivaDX.com or download the app Receptiva DX.